Welcome back to those of you who've uh, been on holidays over summer. Uh, the only ones still partying should probably be the uni kids because they don't start till February or March or whatever it is uh, that they do. But uh, most of us are back. Uh, Johnny and... Oh, sorry, what am I talking about? That's me. Joyce and me, we went on a short trip this year. Uh, we went to Fitzroy Falls down to the Southern Highlands, uh, a little farm down there for a while. Uh, and Joyce, in typical holiday planning style. The itinerary was locked in months in advance where we were staying, which towns we'd visit, uh, which shops in the towns we'd visit, the restaurants were booked in. It was was Excel spreadsheet glory, uh, just telling you exactly where you needed to be, exactly how much money you'd be spending at these places. It's a masterpiece of efficiency and organisation. And Joyce, she, she enjoys putting the effort into researching doing that, uh, researching these things, finding cool places to stay and good deals and good places to, to eat and things to see. It's, it's one of her hobbies. My job is usually just to book the cars uh, and maybe the travel insurance and then to try not to be too grumpy for the holiday uh, when we go. That's, that's all I'm trusted with. Now, I suspect Joyce has even filled in spreadsheets for possible future holidays that she's never told me about. Uh, it's, she's stashed them away. There's a whole folder somewhere in our house, I'm sure. And that planning is comforting. That planning is about being prepared because, you know, at the end of the day, if you're on holidays with Joyce, she's planned the trip well. You can rest easy. You've got a nice, warm place to sleep. Uh, you've got good food in your belly. There's enough money in the bank account so you can just enjoy yourself. And if you're well organised, you've packed everything you need in your luggage and so you just go and you don't have to worry. So the way Joyce likes to plan trips is almost the exact opposite of what we see the disciples doing in this bit of Luke's Gospel that Winnie read out for us earlier. Uh, We're back in Luke and picking up the series again from where I left off. Uh, We're up to chapter 9. And in the eight chapters before this so far, we've seen an account of Jesus' life. We've seen him doing the impossible, really. Uh, We've seen him doing things only God can do. He's been healing the sick, but not like a doctor does it. He he does it with a touch, sometimes with a word. Uh, We've seen him in previous chapters calm a storm by asking it to stop, by ordering it to stop. He's he's brought back uh, even dead children and given them back to their mother, to their father. Uh, We've seen him confront people possessed by the grip of the demonic and to free them from that. So he's gathered this crowd that pretty much everywhere he goes, they're there because they want to see him do this stuff for them or for the people around. There's this big crowd that's following Jesus everywhere he goes. And amongst that crowd, there's this inner circle, so to speak, of 12 disciples who've been with him since pretty much the beginning. And what we see at the start of chapter 9 is that these 12 disciples, he sends them out on this short trip into the countryside to keep on spreading the things that Jesus has been doing. And that's the episode that we're looking at this morning. What they've seen Jesus do, these 12 disciples are supposed to to go, and Jesus is saying to them, I'm sending you, and the things that you've seen me do, I want you to start doing them, not just to talk about what you've seen me do, but he's giving them the power and the authority to do the same things. He gives them a supposed supernatural power. If you look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 9, I'll read. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. 
And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Pretty good gig if you can get it. Uh, exciting sort of work. Uh, it's not normal by any stretch of the imagination. You can imagine these guys. Some of them were, were fishermen. Uh, we know there was a tax collector. These guys were doing normal jobs before they met Jesus. And then Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you, what do you say, power and authority to cast out demons and to heal every sickness, just like they've seen Jesus do. And I want you to go, Jesus says, and wherever you go, I want you to show them and tell them what the kingdom of God looks like as you demonstrate it, as you announce it, as you bring it. And it's pretty cool, right? I mean, with Jesus, this is, they've seen what the reign of God looks like as they've walked with him, they've seen him do all these things. Now they've been tasked with a job, given the power to demonstrate the same reign of God themselves. If you've ever dreamed of having superpowers, this is about as close as it gets. And you're on tour. I wonder if this sort of power, having that sort of authority, ever went to their heads. But notice, there's even more specific instruction that Jesus gives them. He goes on in verse 3. He told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. And if people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town as a testimony against them. Now, how early, how, how in advance do you pack for a trip that you're going on? How prepared do you like to be? Are you more like, you know, my wife who's got an itinerary planned a whole year before we go? Or are you like me who's packing the morning of, if you're lucky? How would you go with what Jesus asked these disciples to do? Jesus gives them power to do some supernatural things, it seems tells them to go, and then tells them to bring nothing. Don't think about the physical provisions you might need. Clothes, toiletries, a bag, money. No, Jesus says explicitly, don't take any of those things. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Go. So, what are they going to eat? Where are they going to stay? How long are they going to be? I mean, they're going to towns they they don't have any relatives in, perhaps. They don't know where these places are going to be necessarily. But verse 4 and 5 suggests that they're going to stay wherever people open up their homes. Their next meal for the duration of this trip is going to be entirely dependent on the hospitality of strangers because they have no money. They didn't bring any bread. It's like they're hitchhiking their way around the whole countryside. And if people don't welcome them, guess what? Keep walking. Heal people, cast out their demons, tell them of the kingdom of God that's come in Jesus. Show them what it looks like. But if they don't welcome you, if they don't want anything to do with you, which might happen, don't sweat, shake it off. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town. You want nothing to do with God's kingdom? Fine. You reject the only chance you've got, fine. If you're pushing away the only chance you have to know God, 
he's got nothing for you. And so the instructions to these disciples at that time was, go. So these 12 men, they they go. Look at verse 6. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Remember, they have no bread, no bag, no money, not even an extra jacket. How far are they going to get? And the question is, I suppose, can God provide for these guys supernaturally? And is this some sort of precedent for the future? You know, are we supposed to live like this? Just up and go. No bag, no bread, no money. Is that how we're supposed to do our planning for our ministry this year, for your, your personal household budgeting, for our church budgeting? Just go around trusting God to provide for us what we need when we need it. And I think the answer is yes and no. Yes, God can and will provide. But also, no. No, because I suspect these particular marching orders in Luke 9 is for a particular season and time and place. If you look later in Luke's account, over in uh, chapter 22, if you're a quick Bible flicker, you can turn there with me. Luke chapter 22. Uh, we'll be reading from verse 35. Luke 22:35. there, they're at the Last Supper. Uh, and Jesus has been talking to his disciples about all sorts of things, but he refers back to this account um, when he tells them to just go and, and go into the towns in Luke 9. Uh, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen to him, what they're supposed to do after Jesus gets betrayed and arrested and crucified. They'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter, Jesus says. You will scatter. But strangely enough, Jesus chooses at this point in the conversation to remind the disciples of what they did back in Luke 9. He says, uh, Luke 22:35. Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replies. Now, now Jesus says they're supposed to take their purse and a bag and even a sword. They're supposed to be prepared for what's coming when Jesus leaves them. He recommends it. And with, it seems with the end game in sight, they're told to take stuff with them this time, not just to go to the villages, but you'll see as it unfolds, they're told to go to the ends of the earth with the, with the news of what Jesus has done. And yet, by the time they hit Luke chapter 22, they've learnt the principle, haven't they? Jesus asked them in verse 35, When I sent you out that time with nothing, no bag, no sandals, no money, did you lack anything? And they said, You know what? No, we didn't lack anything. God provided for us, we didn't lack a thing. That was the lesson they had to learn by experiencing it firsthand. I think that's why Jesus sends them out in Luke 9. I mean, sure, they did a lot of good for the people they met. Um, they probably told a lot of people about Jesus, which is all good stuff. But I wonder if the biggest impact might have been on these 12 men themselves. 
I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like for these guys sent on mission this trip? You go into that first town. Um, it's the first day. You've got nothing except the shirt on your back and Jesus' words in your brain, knowing pretty much no one there. You walk into town and the only thing you have with you as you start sharing about Jesus is his promise that he's given you power. You haven't healed anyone yet. This is your first town. And you go up to that first broken person you see who's in pain with some, dis- with some debilitating illness. You walk up to that person. There's no practice run. You go up to that person. You don't have a work experience badge on. It's just you and Jesus' word. You go up to that person and a crowd gathers to see what you're doing with everyone watching, which is the whole point. You have to say something like, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Or something to that effect. Or the first town you go to, maybe the first place you walk into, there's this demon-possessed man walking down the main street and everyone else in town is trying to get as far away as they can and yet your job that Jesus has given you is to walk towards him. Your orders are to get closer and closer and as you get closer and closer, he gets louder and louder and when you're face to face, you're eyeballing the demons and you're supposed to front up to them and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of this man. And you have no idea if it's going to work, do you? Because it's your first day. It's your first town and all you have is Jesus' word that he's given you the power to do this. You've seen him do it but this is now your turn. But what happens to your faith if that demon leaves? What happens to your faith when that illness disappears at your touch or when you pray? It feels like you're stepping out on a limb, right? But when you've experienced that God's good for it, that he comes through, that's a different story. And then out of the blue, uh, some friendly stranger comes up to you and then invites you into their house to stay. Uh, they, they, they say, come, stay with me, I'll house you, I'll feed you. And they say, God bless you for coming to us with word about Jesus. And your worries about, so what am I going to eat tonight? Where am I going to sleep? It just gets blown out the window, doesn't it? And it happens not just once or twice, for these guys, it happens again and again. In all the towns they go to, wherever they go, person after person in each town, and not every town welcomes them. Some, of them, some tell them to rack off. But time and time again, God provides exactly the people to look after these 12. And so can you imagine how they felt when they realised, I don't know how, when the penny drops for these guys, but that Jesus is coming through for them, that God would actually look after them, that they really didn't need to bring anything with them. And so their faith and their trust grows. And when they come back together, can you imagine? They they talk about what they've seen God do. You can imagine the 12 guys getting around the campfire, sharing their stories, sharing about their trip, being absolutely amazed at what God's provided for them every step of the way. And so they can say, when Jesus asked them at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, remember when I sent you out? Did you lack anything? They could say, actually, no, we didn't lack a thing. Because God provided for us. And it's as if learning that lesson early, getting taught that lesson early, that you can trust God to provide what you need, that lesson is the thing that prepares the disciples for what God's got for them next. 
You know, after chapter 22, a new season of pretty hard work appears for these guys. Persecution and, and pain out of which the church is born. And facing what they were going to face, these 12 become exiles and strangers even to their own countrymen. The Jews chase them out of all their towns because they hold to the name of Jesus and they needed to know that they can look to the God who would provide for them. Now, not every day looks like this for the people of God. People who do life with Jesus, not every day feels like this because maybe we're not tested like this all the time. Maybe we don't choose to put ourselves in situations which, where if God doesn't come through for you, you've got nothing. We don't often choose to put ourselves there, do we? And I get it. It's so much more comfortable and comforting to be well-resourced, to be able to trust yourself and your, your preparations or your, your skills. You've got plan B. You've got the travel insurance. These things that give you a sense that you're in control, that it's going to be okay. We don't like to have to trust God. That's what it comes down to, I think. We don't like to have to trust God and we much prefer to be able to trust ourselves. I see that in myself, uh, which is nuts because I know me and I know God. And between me and God, He is so much more trustworthy and dependable and good. And yet I see myself doing that. I, I say, I want to trust me and not you. Even though I know my track record, even though I know God's track record, it's so nice to feel capable and strong and on top of it all. But it's even better and even more substantial and more comforting to know that God can and will and does provide for us in everything that we need. And the challenge of life with Jesus is to recognise that from start to finish, he wants us to trust him. I wonder what kind of challenges that you might be facing right now that call for faith. Uh, maybe you're at the start of your journey and that first decision is whether you're going to trust Jesus at all. Now you've heard something about him, you're here again this morning and so you're open but at some point you're going to have to decide whether you're actually going to trust him whether you're going to shift from trusting in yourself or some other God, some other system, to trusting in him, that if you throw your lot in with Jesus, he will give you new life. He will give you forgiveness of your sin and a fresh start and a right relationship with God. It changes everything. It's what he offers if you will trust him and what he's done for you. That may be where you're at. That's, that's the first decision of trusting God that you need to make. For some of us this morning, the question is, will you trust Jesus when he tells you wisdom that you don't want to hear? You don't want to accept it. Will you, when he tells you things like, you know, forgive as I forgave you. When he tells you to resist temptation and to run from sin because that's the way to live, that's the way to live that brings life. And you hear that wisdom of forgiveness or for, for, to run from temptation and you think, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to accept that wisdom. 
maybe the challenge for you is a change that you're resisting because it just looks impossible or it's inconvenient or it's just scary. And yet you sense that that's where God might be taking you. And it comes down to whether you're going to actually trust him. Uh, maybe for you it's, not about, it's about how you think about your finances. Can God provide for you? And it's so much easier, I know, to be able to look at the numbers on a page than to say, well, if this falls, then and if God doesn't catch me, then you're gone. That's, that's a scary place to be. Yet for those of you who've come through the other side, I know, for example, you know, Bruce Legon, he tells me stories about CEF. When they were in financial trouble, you should hit him up and ask him at morning tea to tell you about it one day. When you see God come through for you with exactly what you need at the right time, you learn, don't you? You really learn that he's got you covered. He's sovereign. He's good. And he's got you. So maybe the challenge that God's putting before you in this season of life, uh, maybe some of those things I talked about, maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's career change. Maybe it's your ministry direction. Maybe it's an opportunity for sharing your faith. Life with Jesus is about trusting him. And it starts with the little things. It's like getting fit. First time you put on your, your sneakers and you try to do a run, you might only be able to make it around the block. But you get stronger, don't you? And maybe it's like that with faith. You get better as you, as you learn with the little things to trust God and then you get fitter and stronger and pretty soon you can make it two times around the block. Faith's like that. When big steps seem normal for you, you're ready for whatever God's put in your life that he wants you to do. And who knows what God might be preparing you for. Sometimes it can feel like your spiritual life has stalled or that your spiritual life is just non-existent. And if that's you, I wonder whether it's worth asking yourself if somewhere along the line you can look back at your life Think back, was there a decision you made where you said to God, you know what, I don't want to trust you with this. This, this part of my life, big or small, I don't want to trust you with this and I'm not, I don't want to go there. And you know what, unless you deal with it, it doesn't go away. And you shouldn't be surprised that it feels like you're stalled, because maybe you have. Life with Jesus is all about a living faith, a living trust in him. And now it's not just about what God's doing in you. Uh, he may well be working through you to impact people around you too. If you look at verse 7, verse 7 and 8, as we come to the close of um, this passage that we're reading, uh, we find that Herod the Tetrarch, heard all the, the ruler of the, of the area, heard about all the, that was going on. And Herod was perplexed because some were saying John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. <laughs> who, who then is this that I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. See, what you suspect happens, happens. The disciples go about making such a stir in Jesus' name that there's a big stir about Jesus. That's sort of what happens. 
people start asking the question, even Herod starts asking the question, so who is this Jesus? Because what they've seen is different. And I can see that working out even for us, even without the miraculous healings. If us as the people of God, if we start doing what Jesus has asked us to do in faith, you can imagine, if you can imagine forgiving someone who's hurt you, and when other people that you know find out, they might think, I'd never forgive someone who did that to me. Why would you do that? And you say to them, well, Jesus forgave me, and so... And they say, so what? That's for real? I mean, that's just hypothetical, but it's not too far-fetched. You can imagine how being a person of faith would make you stand out in our kind of world. I know, for example, uh, this year with uh, Scripture in the school across the road, for, towards the end of last year we realised that we weren't able to sustain uh, Scripture with the people, personnel that we had just because we were committed in other places and things. Um, so we committed ourselves to praying that we'd be able to find a way forward. Uh, we're about to bring a report next week at the business meeting about um, where, where we think it's heading. But, you know, people like Sonia and people like Michael... Uh, they were able to have conversations with their workplaces in the last quarter of last year, uh, which basically says, I'm going to actually work less. I'm going to cut down to four days. I'm going to take half a day every fortnight. And to tell work and their managers at work, look, I, I like my job. I know you, we have good relationship. I want to take less work on. And they ask, why are you doing that? That's, that's nuts. You've got a mortgage to pay. You've got you know, things to save up for. You've got... And they say, no, I want to take time off because I want to teach scripture. I want to invest in doing some work that's important to me and that sows into the life of these kids because, look, you know I'm a Christian. And this uh, it's, it just takes a little thing like that, a little conversation. It doesn't take much to stand out in our world, to be a person of faith. And you bet it's going to have impacts across their workplaces as those conversations continue to ripple. I guess my question to you this morning is what is the step of faith that God's put in front of you? Whether it's taking that first step to come to him or it's taking one big step further down the line to deal with some of the things that he's put on your heart or maybe some courage to do some of the things he's put before you that you've been holding off. The question is will you trust in Jesus? Amen.